Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 117. Let's open with prayer. Avinu, Maokenu, our Father, our King, thank you, Lord. Truly, truly thank you for all of the blessings and the provision and the protection that you have been providing for us uh, thus far. Uh, having come out of Thanksgiving, uh, just recently, we're exceptionally thankful, Lord. We say, Hudu Ladunai Kitov Ki Leolam Chasdo. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His kindness endures forever. We thank you that you have um, given us a way to celebrate your goodness and celebrate uh, your provision in our lives, uh, at least during this uh, time of year where we can gather together with family. And even if we didn't gather together, thank you for keeping us safe uh, by allowing us to gather in small groups or just within our own immediate family group. Um, thank you, Lord, for providing for us, even in the midst of this dangerous pandemic and all of the uncertainty involving um, uh, income and jobs and economy. And uh, for many people around the world and even in the United States, um, uh, food was scarce during this Thanksgiving, and but Lord, you are a God who provides for his children. Indeed, your grace extends even beyond the immediate family group. Lord, you provide for people who don't even claim to know you. Uh, your grace and mercy are, are immeasurable. So thank you, Lord, that uh, we as followers of you, those who believe in, in Messiah Yeshua, especially can, can give thanks and praise to you as the God and the Father who loves his children and who provides for us. Uh, continue to protect us, uh, continue to strengthen us and raise us up. Help us to have a resolve to know you and to press in and to make it a priority to spend time with you. Lord, if we're not making that our priority, then we're going to succumb to um, the voices of confusion around us, the voice of, of fear, the voice of of um, a political confusion, of of um, uh, uh, what do we say, racial confusion, uh, the voices of of religious confusion, of philosophical confusion. Lord, so many different uh, voices clamoring for our attention all around us, and if we don't make 
uh, a relationship with the Holy Spirit a priority and be filled with him and, and allow him to wash through us and to cleanse us and to, to convict us and to empower us, uh, well then, Lord, we're, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. We're going to be um, uh, casualties, and that's not what we want to be. So bless us tonight as we study, as we press in to your words. Uh, thank you for preserving them and keeping them for us, giving us a reason to to have a better hope um, our, 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 our faith is anchored in your covenant love for us, and it's your words that give us that, that, um, that sound uh, uh, um, certainty, that, that surety, that, that, that promise, that, that uh, down payment, that um, um, measure of, of, of knowing uh, that uh, uh, these are uh, the promises that you've made to us and that you're uh, making good on those promises. And so uh, we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunwa in Thornton, Colorado. These are live internet studies, and let me just r- briefly read through some of the announcements. Um, this is episode number 117. As you can see on my screen right now, I've got uh, uh, my website pulled up, and this is just the, kind of the brief uh, details about these particular studies. We meet each um, uh, Saturday evening from uh, 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And for this particular meeting, uh, the date stamp for tonight's recording is November 28th, twenty. 20. And uh, we'll be, those of you are watching this uh, YouTube video, watching it practically a week later, um, are invited to join us live each week so you can get catch the study as it's being taught live via the internet. Uh, of course, it's an hour-long study and um, there's a lot of segments, uh, details, uh, liturgy, prayer, announcements, video, uh, things like that. But essentially, the hour-long study is broken into two segments. The first 30 minutes is dedicated to the Roman Romans 14 Unplugged study that I wrote entitled Feasts and Fasts and Food, Oh My, and we're in part 36 tonight. And then segment two is a 30-minute study entitled Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two of three-part papers. There's three papers. Yahweh and Yeshua part 53, and it's three parts on purpose to match the pun of Trinity study. And as, as I mentioned earlier, we don't actually spend 30 minutes talking about Romans 14, nor do we actually spend 30 minutes talking about uh, the, the, uh, the Trinity. It's more like like 20 minutes on one and 15 or 20 minutes on the other, sometimes only 10 minutes or five or something like that. A lot of the time of the hour long is taken up in these announcements and the, the video and the um, and the liturgy and things like that. And so we're going to watch a video tonight, possibly two videos, uh, but one of them is entitled Genesis 1-2, entitled uh, Spirit of God versus Holy Spirit. And the theme for tonight um, from the uh, Shema study is on the Holy Spirit. And so I think both of the videos, if we do watch a second video, they'll both be on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just real quick, if you'd like to join us week after week live, you need Skype. Get Skype on your computer, your laptop, your desktop, your smartphone, your iPad, your your Android tablet, uh, you know your Android phone, all of whatever. Get Skype, uh, download it, install it. It's free. Why not? Create a, a, a profile, and that's the easiest way to stay in the loop um, for our Skype uh, conference calls that I make each week. You'll need the group link, as you can see on my screen here. And the easiest way to get that, as I mentioned, is just um, send me an email. In fact, if you're on this page on my website right now, you'll see there's a link right there that if you click on it, it'll, it'll um, send me an email. But probably the easiest way, let me just zap right down to the bottom of my website, 
is go to the very bottom and look for the little icon that looks like an envelope right there. You can see that where it says email pointing at a little red button there. And um, uh, send me an email and tell me you'd like to join the live Skype classes. And I'd be more than happy to send you the um, Skype link and you can uh, join us that way. And then as I always mention, since you're at that part of my screen at the very, very bottom, um, you want to make sure that you don't miss the little yellow donate button because that's your way to reach out and help keep me afloat during these difficult pandemic times in which I'm unemployed and looking for work right now. Uh, your donations help keep me going uh, week after week, month after month, year after year. And so I, I'm especially thankful for those of you who are faithful and are sending me uh, donations. I know it's... Um, I know it's a sacrifice, uh, but uh, I just want to bless you for that. And certainly, of course, those of you who are sending me um, uh, uh, funding, um, you certainly must believe that the Lord is blessing you for your gift, and uh, will bless you in, in, in you know immensely more than I could even just bless you with, with my own words. So, uh, blessings to you. The Harvest is my own home congregation, and um, just briefly, uh, you can go to our website at www.graftin.com and avail yourself of all the um, resources there. Currently, since we are um, forbidden from meeting together based on our, our uh, the, the government, uh, the, the state government's um guidelines right now, then we're doing uh, live streaming for our services. So. Um, and you can see right here, uh, click on the, the little banner along the very top. So I encourage you just to avail yourself of the um, YouTube uh, resources there. Just uh, click on the links there and watch the YouTube videos and stay safe. That's the way to connect to my own home congregation harvest there. Okay. And as I mentioned, I have my own website at um, tatesator.com just real briefly. Let me click on the homepage so you can see it. Um, tatesator.com is my own home my own home. Uh, not congregational websites, my own personal website. And the, um, you can see Tate Say Torah Ministries there. And the address is www.tatesaytorah.com. It's spelled T E T Z E T O R A H dot com. I encourage you to avail yourself of all of the resources that you can see right there on the screen right now, um, uh, all the, the commentaries I put together and things like that. Okay? Alrighty, I've got a YouTube channel that I'll promote a little bit later in my study, but first, let's turn to the liturgy. The liturgy is going to be short and to the point. Um, since we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, this is, I'll just pull up the first passage in the Bible that mentions the Holy Spirit. We've used this liturgy in the past for various reasons. I'll just read it again tonight. Um, it's uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 2 this time, just the first two verses. And we're going to ask the question here. Um, as you can see on my screen, uh, ESV pulled up on the left side, and Masoretic Hebrew on the right side. And verse 1, starting right there. Uh, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Notice it's God that's doing the creating. Um, the, the Hebrew on the right side says Elohim. Um, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I think I will read verse 3 for a reason. Verse 3 says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And when we look at these verses, at face value, God is the one doing the creating, and the Spirit of God is the one hovering over the face of the water, and the Word of God is the um, agent of creation that God is using to speak His creation into existence. For me, there's a hint of Trinitarian 
um, theology behind those three verses, right? A lot of puns there, three verses, Trinitarian, God in verse 1, the Spirit in verse 2, and the Word in verse 3. Of course, we know the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and His name is Yeshua. So um, there's a nice little midrash, a little homily that we could create from these verses. But what's interesting is that in verse 2, it's the Spirit of God that's hovering over the face of the waters. And it's not God himself that's hovering over the face of the waters. And this is going to go towards our discussion later on. Why does Moshe wrote, the Spirit of God hovered? Why doesn't he just write, since God is a Spirit, and God was hovering over the face of the waters? Why does Moshe have to introduce this idea that the Spirit of God is a component of God that can be detached, dispatched from God, and yet is God himself. That's what we're going to be talking about in the Shema study tonight. Look over on the right side of the screen, verse 1 in the Hebrew says, Verse 2 says, And here we have the the Spirit of God, right there in the Hebrew, the Spirit of God is hovering over the safer surface of the waters, over the face of the waters, literally, um, the, the panim, the face of the waters. And then uh, uh, verse 3, and, and God spoke. God, we know that this is the Word, the agent of God. And we, and we also know that this uh, uh, agrees with Yeshua being the um, creator, that uh, the apostolic scriptures reveal to us. So that's our liturgy from the Torah section of your Bible, the, the uh, Old Testament section of your Bible. In keeping with the study on the Spirit, let's look at the liturgy for the apostolic scriptures. First Corinthians chapter 12, um, the first uh, three verses here as well. And this is Paul's admonition about the Spirit and the importance of how the Spirit is... The, the the agency of God, the person of the Trinity, that allows us to um, confess the lordship of Messiah himself. Indeed, I believe there's a hint of the um, ontological nature of Yeshua as identified as very Yahweh, the kurias in the Greek, which translates from the Hebrew um, Yahweh, uh, Y-H-V-H, um, from the, the Sept. Uh, the Septuagint version from Hebrew over into Greek. And so let's just read these verses. There's a whole sermon here, but I don't have time to, to look at it right now, tonight. Let's just read it for our liturgy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Uh, the English says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. We're also going to be talking about the brothers tonight in our um, uh, Roman studies. So this is kind of nice that this verse also mentions the brothers. Paul continues in verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. And then verse 3, Therefore, Paul says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, notice he says Spirit of God, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What's really nice about this verse, again, and we're going to talk about this tonight, is that in verse 3, Paul uses two phrases that are key to identifying who or what the Spirit is. In the first phrase, he says, Spirit of God, Pneumati Theu, and then the second phrase, he says, Holy Spirit, Pneumati Hagio. And we'll see how these two play against one another and with one another uh, later on when we're when we're looking at our um, uh, Shema study. Let's look at the right side of the screen and look at the Greek. 
uh, this is the SPLG and T version of the Greek. Um, and Greek reads left to right just like English, so it should be pretty easy to follow. The Greek says, Peri de ton pneumatikon adelphoiu thelo humas agnaen. Verse 2 says, Oida te hati hate ethne ete prasta edola ta afona hos an egiste apagamenoi. And then uh, the final verse, verse 3 says, Dia gnorizo, um, yes, gnorizo, humen hati udes in pneumati theo, there's the spirit of God. Pneumati theo lalon, lege anathema, Jesus kai udes dunatai, apen curias Jesus, e me in pneumati hagio. And as I mentioned, in the English, Paul says the Spirit of God in verse 3, the first phrase, which is right here. Oops, let's try that again, which is, I don't want to do that. Bear with me here. Go backwards. Um, the first phrase is right here, pneumatitheu, which is translated in English as Spirit of God. And then the second phrase in the English, Holy Spirit, is down here at the very end, Pnumati Hagio. And so um, we're going to see how in Paul, he can interchange, he can he can simply say the Spirit of God, which is obviously the, the Spirit which belongs to God personally, as in God the Father's very own personal Spirit, which is equated with God because it is the Spirit of God, just much like the personal Spirit that we each have is our own Spirit, right? I have a Spirit, if you're living being, then you have a spirit, and therefore the spirit of Ariel is Ariel's spirit. It's not a separate person from me. It's my own very possession, right? It's my own personal spirit. It's nothing spooky going on about the fact that my flesh has a spirit, right? It's No one thinks that my spirit is a separate being or person I can dispatch and do work for me, right? I'm going to stay at home while my spirit goes to work and does, you know, gets paid. Wow, wouldn't that be nice, right? If the Ariel could stay home and the spirit of Ariel could be dispatched to actually do work for me. Well, that doesn't work like that for humans. But for God, the, he has the spirit of God who, you know, God is a spirit. But then when we look at this second phrase in the Holy Spirit, right, the Pneumati uh, Hagio, um, we're fond of thinking as the of the Holy Spirit as a separate, distinct person from God who is still very God in substance and nature, right? So here's the same substance God, but yet is a separate person with his own personality and has uh, work and functions that he can perform while God is, is, as it were, enthroned in heaven and doing what he does. Then the Holy Spirit is down here on earth doing what he does. And so we got two persons. And that's the mystery of the way Paul writes, the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit. And we'll see other verses, how those are linked together as well. Okay, so that's going to be the liturgy for tonight. Let's close that tab. We don't need that one anymore. Let's now turn to um, the uh, two little videos uh, that we're going to watch tonight. Um, first one is Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God versus Holy Spirit. Let's watch a little video, and we can discuss it later on if we need to. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go.
Welcome to A Minute or Two with the Word. I'm your host, Torah teacher Ariel, where every week or so we take a look at a relevant passage of Scripture together as Jews and Gentiles in Messiah. Genesis 1-2 reads, And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Hebrew says, Many Bible readers have wondered out loud at this verse. Is this the Holy Spirit? If so, why didn't Moshe write Holy Spirit? What is the difference between the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit? I personally don't sense any great theological difference between the terms Spirit of God and Holy Spirit, but we'll take a look at some of the technicalities below. Many times a writer will resort to a simple stylistic difference of words in order to highlight a section of his letter or body of thought or such, or to simply avoid redundancy when using the same concept over and over. What is more, sometimes differences in words are meant to convey what we call poetic parallelism, in which different words or phrases complement one another as they attempt to express the beauty of the exact same thing using various original words, yet in poetic fashion, like, for instance, Psalm 119. Ultimately, God is unfathomable in his existence. The Spirit of God is God's Spirit, viz. the Spirit of Holiness, viz. The Holy Spirit. God is a spirit, yet his Holy Spirit is a separate member of the Trinity, yet there is only one God. Ponder that for a while. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, which can be translated variously as breath, or wind, or ghost. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which can also be translated variously as breath, or wind, or ghost. When Messianic Jews such as myself refer to the Holy Spirit, quite often we use the term Ruach HaKodesh. Technically, since the Hebrew word Kodesh is a noun, a verse like Psalm 5111, where the phrase Ruach HaKodesh is found, literally conveys a sense of the Spirit of Holiness. But Holy Spirit, with holy functioning as an adjective, works just fine as well. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and the Bible. Copyright Tate's A Torah Ministries 2015. Let's look at our, this question for tonight. Question. Was the Holy Spirit with the people in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's kind of an odd question, huh? Let's see what the answer is. Yes, the Holy Spirit was indeed present with the people in the days of the Old Testament. Yeah, that's a surprising answer, answer for many Christians, believe it or not. He empowered these individuals, Bezalel in Exodus 31, 1-3, Othniel in Judges 3.10, Jephthah in Judges 11.29, Saul in his messages in 1 Samuel 19.20, and a host of others. Alright, a central role of the Spirit's work is to cause a man to declare Jesus as Lord, making him a true child of God, a clear reference to the salvation 
of an individual. Read Romans 8.16. And that's going to become a central theme of my answer, so follow along. We know there's only one way to the Father per John 14.6. This means that all persons counted as saved in the Tanakh must have also been empowered by the Holy Spirit to have faith in the coming Messiah, right? Even without knowing his name, Yeshua Jesus. Later apostolic writings teach us plainly that regeneration of a man cannot take place without the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. So, let's see this. Let's read and observe the language of the passage from 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3, and I read this in my liturgy. Concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. You knew that you were led as pagans to mute idols. However, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So despite all, his, all of this, his ministry was slightly different back then than that of today because of his unique role and what happened after Acts chapter 2. And what was that? The Holy Spirit fell on all those people who were gathered there. Perhaps it's best to think of his ministry in the Tanakh as less expansive back then as compared to today. Get that? Less expansive. Less expansive is not to be equated with non-existent. In a very real way, the presence and primary ministry of the Ruch Kodesh as we know him today would always have to wait until the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua Jesus. And that only makes sense. In fact, if we think about the, uh, this, right, we've got planet Earth, we've got Yeshua who left planet Earth, he's leaving Earth, and he, uh, the Holy Spirit was specifically sent to testify of Yeshua after Yeshua left this earth, that's John 14, 25 and 26. Let me read this verse for you in Hebrew. Breshit bar Elohim, eta shemai eta aretz, v'haaretz haita tohu v'vohu v'choshek al panei tohom, v'ruach Elohim merachefet al panei hamayim. By the way, that's the verse I read in liturgy. Did you know that the Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, which can also be translated variously as breath or wind. It's that circled red rare word there, ruach. So, when Messianic Jews such as myself refer to the Holy Spirit, quite often we use the term Ruach Kodesh, right? We've got a verse here from the book of Psalms, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit, Ruach Kachika, right? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Since the Hebrew word Kodesh is a noun, a verse like Psalm 51.11 that I just read here where the phrase Ruach HaKodesh is found literally conveys the spirit, the sense of spirit of holiness. But Holy Spirit with holy function as an adjective, like most people are used to hearing, well, that works just fine as well too. Catch me on pod, uh, catch my podcast on iTunes, search term Ariel Hanavi. I've got lots of audio teachings there. But for those of you who prefer YouTube, uh, catch me on YouTube and why don't you go ahead and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Why? Because I promise to upload new content every single week. Oh, main. Oh, main. And that'll do it for the two um, little videos that we're going to watch tonight. Um, 
I encourage you to take advantage of my YouTube channel. I don't have the uh, screen pulled up here, but um, you can go to my YouTube channel at Tate's a Tor. I'm sorry, at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate's a Torah ministries and avail yourself of all the videos that I upload there uh, week after week. I try to actually upload something almost every day. It, it equates to probably about every day of the week, except maybe one or two days a week that I'm not really uploading something. So I'm quite busy. So um, have a, have a look at all the videos that I have to say there. Look at there. And as always, make sure you subscribe uh, so that you're in the loop. Hit the little bell so that you receive notifications. Uh, give me a thumbs up if you like the video content. And then hit the little share button to make sure you're sharing the content with your friends and family members. Okay? Alrighty. Okay, let's turn now to um, the Romans 14 Unplugged Feast and Fast. Uh, Feasts and Fast and Food. Oh my. And... Um, Tonight, we're going to be talking about who is the brother. And so let me just uh, read these verses for you real quick that you can see on my screen. Let me blow this up so it's easier for me to read everything. Uh, We just finished going through all the Sabbaths, so oops, we don't want to go that far. There we go. All right, so in Romans 14, 10 to 13, which we're going to read next week for our liturgy, um, Paul says... um, Uh, Starting in verse 10 right here, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And the Greek word for brother is adelphon, used twice in this passage. He continues in verse 11 right here. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And then verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, And then the final verse, verse 13 here, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of who? A brother. And again, the Greek word, Adelpho here, same root word uh, that we read earlier. And so we're going to be asking the question tonight, uh, and, and we won't finish this tonight. We'll just start on it. It'll probably go like three or four weeks even. Who is the brother, and why should it matter to us? Now, in this part of the study, I've already dealt with a topic that's related to why we should care whether who this brother is in this passage. And it was under the um, uh, part of the commentary. Let me scroll to the very top of this commentary so you can see the, um, the uh, table of contents. Um you remember um, months ago we asked the question, who are the weak in faith? Right now we're on who is the brother. And what you should beginning, be beginning to ascertain is that the weak in faith, the identity of who the weak in faith, is directly related to who is the brother. Because we've got at least two groups of people in Paul's uh, perspective in this part of his letter, and they are... Um, uh, challenged with working together and working with one another. And so the identity of the weak in the faith and the identity of the brothers overlaps with one another. So it's because of that. Let me turn to, uh, let me see, I want to find um, Nanos. All right. Uh, what I did is I introduced this um, perspective from a gentleman by the name of Mark Nanos. And Mark Nanos 
is uh, author of a book that I've got sitting on my shelf here, um, and probably you've got a little screenshot that you're seeing in my post-production right now, um, The Mystery of Romans, Black Book with Red Writing. And that's the book that we're going to be reading a lot from tonight. We won't finish it tonight. We're going to read about two or three pages from the book, as is available for free online using um, Google's Google Books Preview. We're going to look at that. And um, let me first though, read this quick uh, paragraph from my own commentary so you can understand why who the identity of the weak in fate is tied to who are the brothers and why it matters to us as uh, Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. So let me start right here in my commentary and we'll pick up the reading. I've already read this in the past, so I'm just going to read through it very quickly and then I'll go through and explain it. This is part of my uh, one of my um, uh, previous studies already. But here's what I had to say. At this point, it might be helpful to know that non-Christian reformed Jewish author and historian Mark Nanos has identified what we call what I call a fatal weakness, right, pun intended, of the mainstream Christian church position on the weak and the strong by zeroing in on what he calls Luther's trap. Now, let me just pause in case you're wondering, what do I mean by mainstream Christian church position on the weak and the strong? And so let me pull up this little screenshot here for you. In Romans 14, 1, Paul says, don't judge one another, right, because of your difference of opinions. But those who are weak, you need to um, welcome them. And so we ask the question, who are the weak in faith? And as you can see on my screen right now, according to the traditional Christian sentiments that you're going to pick up from studying most commentaries in this topic and on this chapter, here's what I have to say. The weak in faith, they are weak Christians whose weakness is directly connected to their belief in Jesus, plus a continued dependency dependency on Torah. These very same weak Christians are expected to gradually grow in their faith and eventually leave the ceremonial parts of the Torah behind. That is essentially, in a nutshell, oversimplified, of course, for my study here, the traditional Christian perspective on who are the weak. They're weak Christians. Now, this means that they're either Gentile Christians or they're Jewish Christians. But either way, they're Christians, both Jew and Gentile, and, this is very important, the weakness that they display is tied directly to their connection to Jesus as believers, but their continued dependency or preference for keeping Torah-related commandments, such as kosher laws and special days like Sabbath and things like that. This is the traditional Christian perspective on this um, passage. And we're going to look at the alternate perspective here in a moment. But let me go back to my own writing. So when we're talking about Luther's trap, this is a phrase that, that Mark Nanos has coined. And so you're asking a question, what does he mean by Luther's trap? Who is Luther and what's the trap that he's falling into or setting up? I go on to say, so defined, Nano states, quote, Luther, speaking of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther recognized that Paul was clearly instructing the strong not to judge the opinions of the weak, right? That's the thrust of Romans 14. However, Nano's quips, Luther tripped into the very trap of judging them and then read this judgment as Paul's. Did you catch that? That's Luther's trap. That is, right, let me help uh, continue defining it, that is Luther, this is Nano's own word, Luther was tripped by the faulty assumption, number one, that the weak were Christian Jews. That's the faulty assumption. Remember, we, we, I showed you in that short little slide earlier, 
that this is the prevailing assumption of the traditional mainstream Christian perspective on this passage, that the weak were Christian Jews. And then from this perspective of number one, uh, Luther fell into the trap of assumption number two with its inherent inescapable contradiction wherein he indulges in the very same kind of judging that Paul warned the strong, which Luther considered himself to be, to avoid. So Luther's trap is that Luther thinks and believes, believed uh, that the um, the weak in this passage are Christian Jews, right, Messianic Jews, and he also believed that Paul um, Luther also believed that Paul admonished the strong and the weak not to judge one another, right? At least admonishing the strong not to judge the weak. And yet, by assuming that the weak are Christian Jews, then actually, if you read down the rest of, rest of Luther's commentary, which is available online as well as commentary to Galatians, it's available for free as well as you can pick it up in any Bible bookstore. Then you're going to find that Luther also actually falls into the trap of judging those unbelieving I'm sorry are judging those um weak Christian Jews which Luther believed that Paul was telling the strong not to judge and Luther considered himself to be one of the strong so it's a it's a trap that he probably was not aware of and the trap starts by assuming number one that the weak were Christian Jews and so that's the point I'm trying to catch to, to um, explain to you as a messianic Jew myself who takes umbrage with the idea that the um the weak are christian jews so let me finish reading this uh uh, uh little sentence here in my own paragraph um that that quote by the way about luther's trap was taken from mark nanos uh the mystery of romans page 92 so don't be openly offended that i'm speaking of luther's perspective on romans this way nor that i'm speaking of the traditional christian sentiments this way i'm not trying to offend christians who hold this perspective and and give you a slap in the face what are you daft do you think that the that the weak are, are uh, messing with jews for keeping torah or any other christian who keeps torah no that's not what i'm trying to do what i'm trying to do is challenge us with understanding the ramifications of holding this particular perspective and how it can actually, and we're going to see this in a moment, how it can actually damage relationships between Jews and Christians for a very important reason. So let's, without getting ahead of myself, let me keep reading. The truths of these facts is where Stern's messianic Jewish perspective on the identity of the weak and the strong will lead us if we follow their logical conclusions. David H. Stern, the author of the very popular, ubiquitous, uh, complete Jewish Bible that many messianic congregations are fond of using, uh, states, quote, that the weak are Christian Jews cannot be sustained from the scriptures in general and from the letter as a whole for the simple fact that Paul himself was a lifelong Torah-observant Christian Jew. Right. Uh, compare from Acts eighteen eighteen, Acts twenty one seventeen to twenty six, Acts twenty one thirty nine, Acts twenty two three, Acts twenty three six, Acts twenty four fourteen through eighteen, Acts twenty five eight through eleven, Acts twenty six four and five, and lastly First Corinthians nine nineteen through twenty three. Go back and look at all of those passages, and you'll find. Paul admitting his own stance, not just as a believer in Messiah and having faith in God, but also explaining his personal perspective on Torah keeping and the relevancy of Torah as a Messianic Jew. And I conclude by saying, and he, Paul, most certainly included himself among the strong in Romans. Right? Notice, and then I go on to talk about some other things there. But having said that, Let's now look very briefly. We've got just a few minutes. We're not going to cover all of this tonight. 
gold. So um, we'll pick this up again next week. Uh, the alternate perspective, let me at least introduce this to you. The alternate perspective on who are the weak in faith, as is um, uh, uh, explained by Mark Nanos himself, who is Jewish, uh, although he's not a Christian Jew, he's a secular Jew, but he's an historian. And so he's going to bring an historical perspective that unfortunately many Christian commentators miss due to their blindness to things Jewish, things Torah in the Bible, and this kind of proclivity to discount anything that's not Christian uh, altogether. So Mark Nano's perspective, as I'm, as you can see on my screen here, his perspective on who are the weak in faith, which carries over into who is the brother that we're going to be talking about tonight, is, um, I state it this way, according to Mark Nano's, who are the weak in faith? The weak are non-hostile non-Christian Jews whose weakness is directly connected not to Torah, but to their as of yet inability to believe in Jesus as Messiah. Notice the very stark difference in the way he describes their weakness. They are labeled as weak by Paul, but their weakness is, is, a, is an indicator of their lack of decision on who Jesus is as their Messiah yet. Uh, my description of this alternate perspective by Nanos goes on to state their loyalty to Torah, speaking of these non-Christian Jews, these weak Jews, their loyalty to Torah is an expression of their covenant faithfulness to God, and their eventual faith in Yeshua need not over time displace this loyalty. Notice I didn't say anything in there about their loyalty to Torah being an indicator of their weakness. It's because, and we're going to find this out a little later, I firmly believe that Paul would not have um, described Torah keeping as a sign of weakness. That's simply, there's, there's simply a mountain of evidence, not just from the Tanakh, the Bible that Paul, Paul carried, but also from the apostolic scriptures in the very life of Paul himself and Jesus, who was also a Torah keeper, remember, remind yourself, that keeping Torah as a follower of God or later a follower of Jesus, simply cannot be an indication of weakness in one's life. There's, uh, even if you were to describe it in terms of legalism, then we're still probably not talking about um, equating Torah keeping with weakness. There's simply, it's, it's simply um, a very weak, pun intended, argument to describe the weak in faith as someone who's a believer in Jesus yet follows after Torah. So in those last uh, five minutes in this section of my um, segment of my study night, let me um, turn to this book um, of the mystery of Romans. Um, this is actually a quote, I think not from the mystery of Romans, but a, a different book that I can't recall the name of, but in my post-production, I'll add a screenshot of what this book is. Um, but it is available on uh, uh, at Amazon, it's available at Google Books, and of course you can buy it to probably at probably available at your Christian bookstores as well, even though it's written by a non-Christian Jew. The historical content behind this book is well worth the read. So, um, But the author is the same as Mark Nando. So let's read just a bit of this. We're not going to finish this tonight. We're just going to start it. This is avail this this um, preview is available for free, so which is why I'm reading a, a segment of it. We're going to read a few pages of this. Um, let me talk about the strong and the weak and how it is related to who the brother is, because that's the topic. Mark Nanos has to say this. I'm starting actually on page uh, 102 from chapter 3. So we'll start right here at the top of, the, of, the, of this paragraph. Uh, Mark Nanos states, Indeed, the strong are Christians. 
this much Mark Manos agrees with traditional Christian theology. Indeed, the strong are Christians, for they have faith in Christ. They are the audience Paul has continued to address throughout his letters as his letters Gentiles. And he's got some verses there from Romans for you to catch the context. Mark Nanos continues, These strong are those who are in view of Paul's apostleship to the Gentiles, need to obey his bold reminder, and the strong have their minds renewed to recognize that God's will for them is not judgmental arrogance. The strong also should not continue in sin. And uh, we've got lots of verses uh, in this book to support this perspective that Mark Nanos is trying to convey. So he agrees with most Christian authors that the strong are Christians. Um, Nanos continues, um, speaking of Paul, his will for the strong is for them to live in righteousness, practice in the humility that comes from setting their minds on the things of the Spirit, recognizing that they are receivers of grace and they must now become bearers of grace through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, for their God is the God of all people of Israel and of the whole world. Look at all the passages that are pulled in from Romans to, uh, to support this particular perspective in Mark Nato's, uh, book here. So, no question, the strong are Christians. He concludes by stating their strength in recognizing God's grace towards themselves now commends them to live not in the position of arrogant strength that destroys the possibility of grace being recognized by the weak. Let's continue as I scroll down. Speaking of the strong, the lifestyle that they're to lead is rather in the humble position of one who lives graciously toward the weak in order to win them to the grace of God demonstrated in Christ. And we have some verses to support this. So, in closing, we're going to leave off with this teaser as we read maybe just one or two paragraphs here. What is the problem with identifying the weakest Christians? I mean, why not just call them Christians, as most commentators do? Why do we have to label the weak or the brothers? Why do we have to see them as other than Christians. And this is going to pull us into the study about who are the brothers. So here's what Manos has to say. When we turn to the seemingly unquestioned assumption that the weak in faith were Christians, whatever else they may have been, we do not find the same kind of certainty we found with respect to the strong, either in the logic of Paul's message or in the exegesis of the text itself. Let's keep reading. What we find is that the behavior of those called weak is characterized by their opinions of how to practice their faith as differentiated from the behavior patterns of the strong. However, it is not their behavior or opinions that are regarded as weak, listen up, but their faith, right? Look at the verse one more time, um, uh, right here. Paul says in Romans 14.1, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Notice it's, the one who's weak in faith, right? The astenuntate piste over here in the Greek. So Mark Nanos wants us to remember it's the weak in faith, um, not the behavior pattern that's weak. He continues, the weak are understood by Paul and by the strong to whom he writes to be of the opinion that they should eat vegetables rather than meat. These weak also regard some days different from others, and these weak perhaps not drink wine. And they give thanks to God when they eat, though the context is concerned with that which they choose not to eat. 
He continues, they are apparently judging the behavior demonstrated by the practices of the strong, these weak are, to be unacceptable to God. And further, they may be reproaching that is insulting the strong, which uh, is implied as a concern of the strong, as they consider accommodating the opinions of the weak. So um, what we're going to find, let me read just last paragraph here. Uh, Nanos uh, continues, Paul's concern is to alter the behavior of the strong so that the weak are not provoked to speak evil of, that is to blaspheme, um, blasf- uh, and then we have the Greek there, blasphemesto. Um, they are not to blaspheme that which the strong regard as their good thing, right? The, the agathon, the blessings of God. And then next week, as we're going to continue linking together the identity of the weak with the identity of who are the brothers, we're going to find that Paul regarded the weak as brethren both to himself and to the strong in Rome, as we see in his comments to the strong. And we'll pick up this quote from Mark Manos's book next week. We'll leave off with this little cliffhanger as to um, who are the brothers in Paul's letter in this part of Romans. Okay, And um, that'll do it for our study on Romans 14. So let's close that tab. And let's turn now to our study on exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We'll take the last uh, 13 minutes or so left in our hour to uh, uh, look at this particular study. And we're now, as I drop all the way down to the end of the study, if you recall, we're in this little chart that Karm put together, and we're looking at the Holy Spirit and we've started looking at the passage in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. And the passage is, of course, Peter explaining to Ananias and Sapphira that um, they lied to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5, verse 3, and in doing so, they lied to God. And so Paul equa- I'm sorry, Peter equates lying to the Holy Spirit with lying to God. We looked last week, however, that if you scroll down to verse 9... That Peter says that, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? So there's an argument that the Holy Spirit is really just the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord. And if we use this passage, we can actually see that there's support for that perspective because the commentary to Peter's own actions here are that agreeing to testing the Spirit of the Lord, like we see here, um, is really testing the Holy Spirit. And so the argument could be supported either way. I've heard people say, well, the Spirit of the Lord really is just the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit really is just the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, there's no separate um, second, third person of the Trinity, or whatever you want to call the Holy Spirit, like uh, anti-Trinitarians would argue. The Holy Spirit is really just the Spirit of God. And they get that support from this and other passages. And so let's look, begin to continue to look at this, begin to continue, right? Let's continue looking at this um, from that perspective and asking ourselves, is the Spirit of the Lord really just the Holy Spirit? And is the Holy Spirit really just the Spirit of the Lord? This is a continuation. And we might even conclude this tonight. I've got tons of tabs open if you look at my screen here, about 20 of them there. I don't think I'll get through all of them, but there's a lot of information that's going to that we can examine. So let me do this. Before I even and jump into um, all these verses and different commentaries and different references and resources, let me give you the bluff, the B-L-U-F, the bottom line up front, otherwise known as the T-L-D-R, too long, didn't read, explanation. In my opinion and experience with using the text, 
as I read through the Bible as a whole, I am a Trinitarian uh, believer. I believe that there's one God who expresses himself in three persons. And I arrive at this conclusion based on my uh, interaction with what the text gives to me. That is to say, if I take the text as a whole and give it all of its historical precedent and give it all of its historical importance and the theological precedent that's outlined in one book that leads into another book so that we have this kind of progressive revelation of who God is and how he interacts with mankind, then what I'm left with when I look at all of the passages and take put them all together on the table and use what I call the scientific approach to uh, this particular topic, I'm left with the conclusion that there's one God who is complex in his unity. He's complex in his nature, and he's complex in the way he he um, reveals himself to mankind, the way that he interacts with mankind, and the way he inspired mankind to describe him in his own autograph, namely the Bible. And the bottom line is that I can't really come to a conclusion that there's just one God without these at least three, and I'm going to say there's only three because the Apostolic Scriptures doesn't give me any room to say there's a fourth or a fifth or a sixth person, etc. There's just three, like recall Yeshua's um, admonition to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's no other fourth name that he mentions there. And Paul uses what we call tr- um, um, triunity passages or triune passages where um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned and things like that. And we'll see some of these tonight. And so the conclusion that I come to is that there's one God, we can call him the Father, and yet he exists in three persons, as difficult as it is for me to wrap my mind around that, right? Three separate persons, um, because they don't completely overlap. In when it comes to their um, identity, their roles, their functions, um, uh, and things like that. So one God, one who, one what, and yet three who's, like Dr. James White is fond of saying, one what with three who's. One God, yet three persons. That's the, the conclusion I arrive at. All right, so let's continue looking at this Spirit of God versus Holy Spirit, or Holy Spirit versus Spirit of God, are they really just one and the same, like we saw in Acts chapter 5? Um, the proponents of that view gain their support from verses like this, where Peter explains that the Spirit of the Lord is really just, he, he didn't say that it is just, but he gives perhaps that perspective. Um, he hints at that. And here's the, here's, the, here's the crutch. If you just read through the Old Testament and ignore the New Testament, like, standard traditional uh, Orthodox Judaism does, right, secular Judaism, then you are going to come to the perspective that the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of God, and that the Holy Spirit that's uh, mentioned in the Bible, in your Tanakh, your Old Testament, is in fact just God. It's God's own Spirit, like we read in Genesis 1-2, right, in the Spirit of God over the face of the waters. And so you're going to come to that conclusion that there's no separate persons going on here. It's just one God who has his spirit that can go from him, that's true, can be dispatched, but it's nothing that should cause any alarm. It's just kind of an anthropomorphism, kind of a personalization of God giving him his own personhood, but not expanding to any second or third person of the Trinity. It's just one person, one God, one being, and his spirit can be dispatched much the way his own word can be dispatched, um, like a messenger from God, things like that. So let's look at some of these um, uh, uh, passages. I'm going to click through some of these tabs and read through as many of them as I can tonight. And if we have to go through them again next week, then we will. Um, 
I've got a tab opened up from CARM's uh, website on the Holy Spirit, and you can reach this on CARM on CARM's website at CARM.org. And uh, they've got a, a, a commentary on the Holy Spirit that I've got, actually got two of them pulled up. Um, the first one is just a generic uh, description of the Holy Spirit. Karm uh, talks about that he's the third person of the Trinity. He's fully God. He's eternal, omniscient, om- omnipresent. He has a will and he can speak. He's alive. He's a person. He is not particularly visible in the Bible because his ministry is to bear witness of Jesus. References from John fifteen twenty six. And then they also go on to talk about how that, and we're aware of this as well, that some cults like Jehovah's Witnesses say that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than a force reasoning from the scriptures. Uh, This is the reference, um, uh, page 406 to 407, which I've got pulled up in another tab. And according to Karm, this is false. If the Holy Spirit were merely a force, then he could not speak, he could not be grieved, and he would not have a will, right? These are attributes of personhood. We're talking about speaking and being grieved. You know, last time I checked, my electricity in my house, which is 220 out here in Korea, by the way, electricity can't speak, it can't be grieved, and it does not have a will. And I gave this kind of silly example comparing impersonal objects like my MacBook Pro sitting here in front of me on my desk uh, to describing the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, an, in, an, in, uh, an object that has no personality. Um, you know, I, 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 could I, can you lie to an impersonal pro, uh, object? Can you lie to an impersonal force? You know, you can lie to the Holy Spirit according to Acts chapter 5. But can I, can I lie to my MacBook Pro? Hey, MacBook Pro, I'm going to buy you some more memory next week. <laughs> no, not really. I'm just joking. I don't have any money to buy a new memory. <laughs> You're just going to have to deal with the, the, the measly four gigabytes of memory that you have. Am I lying to my MacBook Pro? Right? It's an inanimate object. It, it, doesn't, it can't detect that I'm lying. It can't perceive that I'm lying. So if the Holy Spirit is just an impersonal force, like the, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, and how could how could Peter describe us lying to it? That's uh, the point. And so Carm's going to bring up uh, this whole chart, and we're not going to look at this. I'm just making you aware of it uh, about how the Holy Spirit has names, his attributes, uh, symbols that are represented in the Bible: wind, dove, fire, and sins against it, and the power and the and, and the Christ life, and things like that. And it's a great resource. Go back and look at that on your own. The other tab that I've got hold, pulled up is who or what is the Holy Spirit. And then we got an article again talks about how he's the third person of the Trinity. He's a he's a member of the Godhead, um, uh, and how and this time they pick on uh, the Mormons. Teach that he's a male persona. He's a male uh, personage of flesh and bones, and and they go on to say that actually the Mormons teach that the Holy Ghost is a God, the male personage, and the Holy Spirit is the presence of God the Father, and they are also wrong. So we've got fringe groups uh, that just don't quite understand who the Holy Spirit. is who or what the Holy Spirit is. And so that's what we're interacting with in this particular study, as we're trying to ascertain from the Bible, using all of the Bible, not cherry-picking, not singling out one passage. I've heard, you know, the, the, the um, videos on YouTube are legion uh, as to who or what the Holy Spirit is. Is he a person? Is he, He's not a person. And too often, the person presenting their case as to who or what they think the Holy Spirit is simply just camps out on one or two verses. Don't do that. Don't read your Bible that way. Don't find your favorite passage and elevate that to the forefront and say, well, this is proof positive, you know, open and shut case that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force and you use one verse to describe that. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
All right, we're, we're trying to be better Bible students than that. So as we look through different passages, well, I've also got this tab, Jehovah's Witnesses, Acts chapter 5 pulled up. You can see that the way they explain or the way they convey their perspective on who um, the Holy Spirit is, is that, um, let's see, in verse 3, they simply call the Holy Spirit they simply say the Holy Spirit with a lowercase h and s. And that's a way of saying, conveying their understanding that the Holy Spirit is this impersonal force of God. He doesn't even really have personality, although if he's the Spirit of God and if God himself has personality, which clearly he does, why wouldn't his Spirit have personality? I'm not sure why they make that leap from saying that the Spirit of God is simply, the Holy Spirit is simply just, merely just the Spirit of God, yet he's an impersonal force or something to that effect. We'll, we'll continue to wrestle with this uh, as we go along. I've got another um, uh, commentary pulled up. Uh, this one, you can see all the addresses here. I'm not rattling them off in my study, but you can see them here as you're looking at the YouTube video. Just zoom in on this part of my screen there. Uh, Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, Paraclete, Comforter. And this is a great article as well. It's quite lengthy. Um, and there's a lot of advanced information on um, the the, the, the nature of the Holy Spirit from the Trinitarian perspective. And so we may read some of this in time, but I don't, I'm not going to read all of that tonight. In fact, I'm not going to read any of it. I'm just bringing, making you aware of this resource that we might uh, look at uh, as time goes on. And then um, another perspective that I've got here is the uh, Seventh-day Adventists actually, believe it or not, have a lot in agreement with um, mainstream Christian Trinitarian perspectives, Orthodox Trinitarian perspectives, when it comes to who is the whole, who and what is the Holy Spirit, and uh, an author uh, that put together a, a commentary that I've got pulled up on my screen right now. I'm not even sure how to pronounce his name. C L O U Z E T sounds French to me, so I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. But he has an article that I've got uh, uh, pulled up on my screen right now, and we'll read some of this in time, about why a biblical view of the person of the Spirit matters. He believes, as an Adventist, a Seventh-day Adventist, right, an SDA, that the Holy Spirit is indeed a person. And why does this matter to us? And so we might look at this in time. I apologize for going so fast through this tonight. Um, I'll slow down a little bit more next week, and we'll make this part three on the Holy Spirit. We'll finish this off next week week. But I'm just making aware of some of the resources that I've been pulling through over the last few weeks uh, to present us with this part of the study. Um, uh, the Jewish Encyclopedia has their own perspective on who or what is the Holy Spirit. And this is a great little re resource, jewishencyclopedia.com. It's available for free online. It used to be in print, and then they uh, converted the print over into uh, uh, web text. So this is great. We might look at some of this uh, in time. As, of course, can be expected, since it's written from a Jewish perspective, their final conclusion is going to be similar to that of the Unitarian or Jehovah's Witness perspective, in that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is really just the spirit of the one God that we know as the Father in the New Testament. There is no really separate third person, although they are going to reference um, some of the um, information that's available to us as Christians, right? Talking about the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove and the dissemination of the Holy Spirit in New Testament times, Gentiles and the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, but their conclusion is going to be, just like mainstream Judaism, that the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God are one and the same. In time, I've got an article written by um, 
Saint Basil the Great and the Divinity of the Holy Spirit, the great church father uh, Basil, and his uh, he's a he's a strong Holy Spirit uh, author and uh, a great a, a big champion on the Holy Spirit, the person on the Holy Spirit, and uh, things like that. And we'll look at his commentary perhaps in time as well. I've got a resource pulled up from there. But for now, let me close by just briefly, um, and we'll look at these again next week. But let me close by briefly. Um, giving you some references to look up this week. In Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's the new NIV version. Um, in the ESV, he says, Do not grieve... Let me scroll up there. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, it's interesting that this verse kind of overlaps what I'm describing, the two kind of ways that Paul describes God's Spirit and the Holy Spirit in his letters. He, at the same time, describes the Spirit as the Holy Spirit, and yet at other times he describes it as the Spirit of God, Him. And so we kind of have this overlapping of Paul's understanding of his theology, which was pulled in from the Tanakh, that the Spirit of God is God's Spirit, yet now Paul can begin to understand and articulate that this Holy Spirit, which can be poured out from God and given to believers to reside in believers, yet at the same time is the Spirit of God, and yet at the same time contains his own unique attributes and uh, actions and decisions that describe him in uh, what we would describe as or identify as personhood. Thus, Paul can also agree that the Holy Spirit is has personhood. He's not just the impersonal um, uh, uh, force that's emanating from God and, you know, like electricity that's flowing through your house that's causing things to operate, to you know, lights to turn off and on and things like that. It's not the way Paul viewed God's Holy Spirit. And so we can see that, and we'll look at this a little further in Ephesians 4.30 next week. Likewise, I've got a passage pulled up from 1 Corinthians 3.16. Uh, the ESV says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? God's Spirit dwells in you. God's Spirit. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says God's Spirit dwells in you. But if we look at 1 Corinthians 6.19, using similar verbiage, Paul says, sorry about scrolling there, Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. So let me look at those two passages kind of side by side. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, right? Same letter, just three chapters later. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, what am I doing? Notice that Paul is overlapping the phrase Holy Spirit in 6.19 with the phrase God's spirit in 3.16. So, in this question of, is the Holy Spirit simply God's Spirit? Well, the answer is yes and no. It's not as cut and dry as we might want to say. God's Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit, but the Holy Spirit in God's complexity is a separate person. And yet, the Holy Spirit is not a different being than God. The Holy Spirit is not a different spirit than God, because God is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, who is a spirit. All right, wrap your mind around that one for a moment. 
Uh, next week, we're also going to continue to look at these other passages, Matthew 10, 20, ESV. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. These are Yeshua's words, talking about when the disciples were going to be on um, trial, as it were, before the synagogues, and um, you know what are they going to say, what are they going to do when they're questioned. Yeshua says in Matthew, it's the Spirit of your Father who's going to be speaking through you. Mark chapter 13, same story. He says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand for what you say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. He didn't say the Spirit of God, Spirit of your Father. He says the Holy Spirit. But then in Luke, same reference, same story. In the ESV, it says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. And then again, Luke, tells, telling the same story of Yeshua speaking, says, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Yeshua gives us the wisdom. So look at this. Matthew has Spirit of the Father speaking. Mark has the Holy Spirit speaking. Luke has the Holy Spirit teaching you what you ought to say in one reference. And then Luke has Yeshua giving you the mouth and wisdom in his second reference. Father, Holy Spirit, Yeshua himself. See how the verses overlap to convey the sense of one God, but the Spirit who's working in and among you being described in, in these various ways. In closing, first, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14 has Paul saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We have a triune passage or a trinity passage. All three are mentioned. And notice that it is the attributes of personhood that are being described. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship. Right? Grace extends from a person and a man known as Jesus. Right? My laptop can't give me grace. The electricity running through my house can't extend grace. It's a personhood that's being described. It's personal. It's personality that we when we talk about the grace of Lord Jesus, the love of God. My laptop can't extend love to me. The electricity running through my house can't extend love to me. It's the love of God demonstrating that God has personality. He's a person. And then finally, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. As much as I like and appreciate my MacBook Pro, I can't have fellowship with it. As much as I like and appreciate the electricity running through my apartment, I have no fellowship with it. But Paul says we can have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Are you noticing that these are persons that Paul is demonstrating here for us in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 14? Moving along, and this is really my final reference closing tonight. In Hebrews 9, 14, the writer to the book of Hebrews uh, says here that how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? The writer tells us that the spirit is eternal. The eternal spirit. The everlasting spirit has thought reference in other verses, but most versions have it referenced as the eternal spirit. This is the only time this phrase is found in the New Testament. The eternal spirit. Right? The only time it shows up in the Bible, the eternal spirit. And in closing, in similar fashion, the writer to the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moshe, describes God as the eternal God is in your dwelling place. Different language. I know one's Hebrew, one is Greek. 
But notice in English we have the eternal God, which is also a hapax legomenon, right? A phrase that's only found once, the eternal God. And so it's interesting that we have dual, that we have phrases that kind of overlap. The eternal God in Deuteronomy and the eternal spirit in Hebrews. Well, last time I checked, there's only one thing in the known universe that's eternal, and that's God. Everything else is finite. Everything else is a product of creation. Only God himself is infinite. He has no beginning. He has no end. Only he is eternal. So what am I saying in closing? That if the writer to the book of Deuteronomy, which is Moshe, described God as eternal, and the writer to the book of Hebrews described the Spirit as eternal, then the conclusion that we're to come to is that the Spirit is God. He's very God, because there's only one thing in the universe that is eternal. And so that's where we'll leave off tonight. We went a little bit longer in the um, uh, Shema study, but it's necessary from time to time. We'll pick all this up next week. We'll go through these 20 tabs one more time. I'll slow down a little bit on read some of the commentary, and we'll slow down a little bit more and look at some of the passages if need be, okay? But let's now close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name and thank you for the study. I thank you for the topics. I thank you for the Roman study and the importance of understanding who is our brother in Messiah. Who is this brother that Paul was referring to? Who are the weak in faith? Are they just fellow Christians that we can relate to as we go to church and interact with uh, on our job and our families, and we don't really need to concern ourselves with anyone else in our community as we interact with uh, the words of God? Or perhaps was Paul describing in his day a larger faith community that would include the Jews who were attending synagogue who were contemplating this Messiah Jesus as they heard about him from their Messianic Jewish brothers and they heard about this Jesus from the Christian Jews, I'm sorry, the Christian Gentiles, uh, the Gentile Christians who were being brought into the synagogue communities and thus allowing Paul to reach out not just to um, Gentiles with the faith of Messiah, but to also continue to reach out to his fellow Jewish unbelieving brethren with this faith in Messiah as well. Lord, challenge us with this idea that if indeed our brothers or our fellow covenant members who lay hold of faith in God but haven't yet laid hold of faith in Messiah, let us continue to have a burden for them and to reach out to them um, and want to bring them into this uh, uh, a more exclusive fellowship uh, with God known as uh, faith in Messiah. And then for the Shema study, Lord, I thank you for the challenges that are presented before us as we contemplate these topics of the nature of God, the nature of Messiah, and the identity of the Holy Spirit. Help us to pour through the scriptures with wisdom, with discernment, helping us to be thorough in our research so that we can come to conclusions that are supported by the text as a whole, not cherry-picking, not uh, isolating a verse here, a passage there, or our favorite uh, uh, theology or philosophy here and there, but rather allowing the Bible to speak for itself in, in its totality even if some of the verses and wording that's used leaves us scratching our heads as to how to put the two together, let us worship you as the one God who has nevertheless expressed and revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen. 
That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>